We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. Welcome back to another episode of Weird Distractions Podcast, a weekly show where I, your host Alex, rotate in discussing true crime, conspiracy theories, paranormal stories, folklore, a little bit of this and a little bit of that to provide you, and more than likely, what your hot dog eating contest winner would consider a weird distraction from everyday life. This week, we are back discussing a true crime case, but before we dive into the case, I do have a little bit of housekeeping and I I do need to tell you what I need a distraction from this week. So if you want to skip ahead about, I would say, five minutes to get right into the meat and potatoes of the episode, you're more than welcome to do so. In terms of housekeeping, just a little bit of an update. I was hoping to release a listener distractions episode this month, being November, but time kind of got the best of me and I completely forgot about it. So... (laughs) My apologies. I'm hoping to release it December 13th, so keep your eyes peeled and your, you know, podcast platforms refreshed. On December 13th, there should be a new Listener Distractions episode. I'm always collecting stories, whether it's paranormal experiences, true crime cases that maybe were really close to home for you, or just in general, anything that made you think, wow, that was really weird of a situation. Feel free to email it to me at weirddistractionspodcast at outlook.com or shoot me a DM on any of my social media platforms. In terms of my need for a distraction this week, I, I I think it was maybe like a week or so ago, I was just scrolling on Instagram, doing my thing, you know, what I do every single day, mindlessly doom scrolling, if you will. And I follow all that's interesting on Instagram. I like their articles. I enjoy reading them and might as well give them a follow, right? Especially because I also heavily resource them. Anyways, so I saw a terrifying picture of a fish and decided to look into it more and I need distraction from the fact that the ocean continues just to be more terrifying the more that we investigate it. So the article is by Kalina Frega. It was published on November 7th of 2022 and it's titled Underwater Magic World, Australian Expedition Discovers Wealth of Deep Sea Creatures. And when I tell you this shit is freaky, I'm not meaning like Nightmare Before Christmas kind of freaky. I mean, this, these things that they've found in the ocean, terrifying, absolutely terrifying. For example, the blind cusk eel, not things of nice dreams at all. There's also an eel from the family Conigrade, which looks like a reversed eel with teeth. No, thank you. And what terrified me the most was a translucent high fin lizard fish. Honest to God, if I die and I see that before my my end has come, I know that I am going to hell because that there's no way. There's no way that thing is a sign of of good. Yeah, so that's what I need distraction from this week. 
If you would like to hear your reasons for needing a distraction on a future episode, feel free to shoot me an email, send me a DM, and also let me know what you think if you do check out this article. I just don't like, I don't, the ocean is terrifying. That's all I'm going to say. But with all of that being said, I think it's time to dive into this week's episode. For this week's true crime episode, I've picked another missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls case to hopefully shed a little bit of light on. For a while, I've tried to sprinkle more of these cases onto the show as I'm hoping that maybe someone somewhere may know something. And if they know something, maybe tuning in and being reminded of the case may incline them to call and submit a tip. I know I'm just a small indie podcaster who doesn't have the same reach as other true crime podcasts out there. But I still want to focus on cases like this. And by cases like this, I mean the ones that aren't usually covered or don't get as much attention as other, I don't know, well-known or bigger cases, I guess, as people would call it. Basically, cases that are predominantly involving white victims from affluent families. Yes, I may cover a big case from time to time, but I will always try and mix things up a bit because, you know, that's just that's just how I roll. With all this being said, this week I'm discussing the disappearance of Annie Yassi, a teenager who has been missing for 48 years. Due to potential coarse language, disturbing adult themes, and other topics that could be discussed today, listener discretion is advised. Annie Yassi was born on July 27th of 1960. She has a sister, Eva, and a brother, Fred. And they, along with others in their family, were a part of the Sayasadeen First Nation near Tadule Lake in Manitoba. And I'm just gonna say, I'm very sorry if I'm mispronouncing anything in this episode. Probably should have made that statement beforehand, but I did try and jolly phonic some words, but bear with me. I'm, I'm gonna try my best if I do make some mistakes, just let me know and I will try to address them in a future episode. But anyways, geographically speaking, they were located a couple kilometers away from Churchill, Manitoba, which is under a two-hour flight from the province's capital being Winnipeg. Now, according to the website Stories of the Untold, the background of the CSA Dean involving the government is absolutely awful. And I'm going to explain why. We'll get back to Annie, I promise. I just want to touch on the area she lived in a bit further to kind of give folks tuning in an idea. In a direct quote from the Stories of the Untold website, quote, The history of the Sayasadeen is a troubled one due to the federal and provincial governments. Before 1956, the group resided near Little Duck Lake in northern Manitoba. In the mid-1950s, Canada as a whole was experiencing a caribou shortage, and part of the blame for this was placed by the government officials on the Sayasadeen, who were then airlifted to Camp 10, which later became known as Dean Village, end quote. There were multiple promises and agreements that were made by the government, which were not followed through on according to reports. These promises included the government supposedly stating that they would send in hunting and trapping supplies, which never came. The folks residing in Dean Village would begin to enter poverty because there were no jobs. And on top of this, crime and alcohol consumption increased and there was really no resources for anyone to access. And by resources, I mean there were no mental health supports, no addiction supports. Like, from what I gather, they kind of were plopped in the middle of nowhere, basically. 
As well, children were being swept up to go to residential schools, which probably added more stress, trauma, and despair, and, well, chaos for the community. Residential schools, for those unaware, were these institutions ran by non-Indigenous or non-First Nations peoples across North America. The goal of these schools was to separate Native American or Indigenous folks from their families and teach them basically how to be more of a Christian Caucasian person. There is so much more history of residential schools, and to be honest, I have teetered on doing an episode on them, but I also don't know if I'm the right person to take up that space in discussing it. Not only that, but there are other shows out there that have discussed residential schools as well. The podcast Historica Canada released an episode about residential schools in February of 2020, and there is also the CBC podcast called Cooper Island, which Cooper Island was a residential school near BC. Both shows will be linked in my resource list if you are interested in tuning in to learn more. But let's get back to Annie. By fall of 1973, when she was about 13 years old, Reports claim that Annie was sent to the McKay Residential School in Dauphin, Manitoba, approximately 925 kilometers or about 10 hours away from Dean Village by car. Based on what I could see on Google Maps, it's definitely a hike between the two places. Google couldn't even give me a calculated travel distance or route. That's how, (laughs) that's how far it is. By June of 1974, Annie was home, which let's actually speed up to June 22nd in particular of that year. As noted, Annie had returned home from residential school and reportedly was home around the same time as her brother, Fred. On the night of June 22nd, Annie allegedly was out drinking with a man described as being at least 10 years her senior. We don't know the name of this guy or any further identification of him based on what I could see online. The pair had allegedly been out celebrating Treaty Day, which according to the Canadian Encyclopedia website, Treaty Day commemorates the day that certain treaties were signed by the government of Canada and Indigenous peoples between the 18th and 20th century. Treaty Day is also a celebration of the historic relationship between Indigenous peoples and the federal government. It promotes public awareness about Indigenous culture, history, and heritage for all Canadians, end quote. So the two were out celebrating. Annie was just shy of 14 years old and with a man who was maybe near his mid-20s. Accounts claim that the two had gotten to a cab to go to the nearby gravel pits approximately three kilometers outside of Churchill. I believe the cab they got into was from her house, but I may be wrong. The gravel pits, based on what I read online, was known as a local party spot where folks would camp, have bonfires, and probably socialize with others. The cab driver that picked Annie and this man would later report that Annie appeared to be very intoxicated. The unidentified man she was allegedly with had to pull Annie out of the vehicle as she appeared to be passing out. This unidentified man then had requested that the cab driver pick the pair up later in the evening. Little did that cab driver know at the time, but he would become one of the last people to see Annie alive that evening. Hours had passed and the cab driver comes back to the gravel pits to pick up the pair. Or so they thought. The cab driver allegedly picks up the man that he had interacted with before, but there was no Annie. 
The unidentified man gets into the cab and the driver notices that this guy is way more intoxicated than he was before. From my understanding, there was no discussion of Annie and the guy was taken to his location without any further concern. Back at the Yassi home, Fred was awaiting his sister to return from her evening out. Resources, such as the Stories of the Unsolved website, noted that when Annie didn't come home, Fred reportedly wasn't too worried at first. Supposedly, Annie had mentioned to Fred before she had gone out that she had intentions to perhaps visit their sister Eva at some point. So, given she went out and wasn't home yet, he probably figured that's where Annie had went, to Eva's. However, Eva came to the village on June 26, four days later after Annie had went out. Once Eva came to the village, that's when concern grew, as Eva indicated she hadn't seen Annie and confirmed that Annie didn't come to her place. The family went to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, also known as the RCMP, and reported Annie missing on June 26. An air and foot search soon followed, which was completed by investigators, family, friends, and volunteers. Unfortunately, reports claim that nothing in relation to Annie's disappearance was discovered. I'm assuming this means that there was no scattered ID found, none of her items of clothing were found, and so on. Listeners tuning in may be thinking, okay, what about the guy she was reportedly with? The unnamed man who Annie was last seen with was confronted by both her sister Eva and by investigators. The man, whose name has never been released, reportedly told Eva he didn't remember what happened to her sister. He says, I don't remember. I don't remember nothing. I was drunk, Eva Yassi said in a CBC article by Donna Chiaro. In that same article, Eva noted in a quote, he couldn't even look me in the eye. It seems like this dude was a dead end in terms of any confirmation or clues, and it wasn't long before the disappearance of Annie became cold. The file would be cold and closed until 2014, when accounts claim that the Winnipeg detachment of the RCMP reopened Annie's case file. Two years later, in 2016, investigators called Eva to request a DNA sample from her. I'm not able to confirm if DNA was taken because it kind of looks like, based on resources, that there was a delay in the RCMP retrieving the DNA from Eva. This could no longer be the case come 2022, but I'm just going off of what I gathered in the online information. Regardless, to add concern to this situation, the unnamed man Annie was reportedly last seen with has since passed away, meaning one huge clue to what happened to Annie on June 22nd of 1974 is no longer able to reiterate anything. Mind you, he didn't sound super helpful previously. Now, there are a few theories as to what happened to Annie on that fateful June night that I came across online. The first theory is that there was foul play involved. According to the stories of the Unsolved website, given the amount of time that has passed and the lack of evidence uncovered over the course of the investigation, many think Annie was murdered. Who murdered Annie remains to be a question, and why they murdered a teenager is another question with no answer. The second and not-so-great theory allegedly came from investigators. This theory is that Annie may have been sleepwalking on the night of her disappearance. The sleepwalking theory, as 
as you may have guessed it, was heavily criticized, which led investigators to scrap it. I mean, yes, she was intoxicated and nodding off in the cab, allegedly, but you would think if she slept walk, she would have been discovered by now. That's just my opinion, which doesn't necessarily have any weight behind it. But moving on, let's wrap up this week's case with some more information on Annie and who to contact if you or a family member or even a friend of a friend of a friend know something. As mentioned, Annie was 13 years old when she went missing from just outside of Churchill, Manitoba on June 22nd of 1974. Resources I came across claim that she was wearing a blue denim jacket, a pair of blue denim jeans, and brown shoes with a three-inch heel. Annie reportedly had brown eyes, black hair, and at the time of her disappearance, she was approximately 5 foot 4 and weighed around 104 pounds. She has also been described as having a thin build. Annie's case, like many other missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls cases, are a reminder that we need to take better care of one another. We can't change what happened in the past, but we can listen, learn, grow, and adapt. Not only that, but we can highlight those names in the media whose cases have seemingly gone cold, or at least give some kind of voice behind those that can no longer speak. If anyone has any information regarding Annie's disappearance, no matter how small you may think it is, please contact the cold case unit of the Winnipeg RCMP at 204-983-5461. If you have information but wish to remain anonymous, you can call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. As mentioned earlier, I recognize I probably mispronounced something, so if you want to shoot me an email, let me know. I can try and amend that in future episodes or at least address it. And in general, if you want to let me know if I should keep covering cases like this, I would love to hear the feedback. If you've enjoyed today's Weird Distractions episode, please consider telling your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else who will listen about the show. You can tell them to find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, Google Podcasts, Podchaser, and many more. If you're streaming the show on Apple Podcasts or Good Pods, please consider leaving a five-star rating and review. This helps the show out for free by letting others know that it's worth listening to. Another way to support the show for free and to never miss an update is to follow along on the show's various social media accounts. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. My handle is at WeirdDistractI1 and TikTok. If you want to financially support the show and get yourself a little something extra each month, why not join one of the two tiers over on Patreon? Each month you get exclusive content such as bonus episodes and series, the Weird Destinations travel posts, plus early access to the regular feed episodes. You can find out which tier is best suited for you by going to patreon.com slash Podcast. Shout out to my current patrons, aka my weird little family members, Tom, Bailey, Angela, John, Alicia, Lynn, Susan, Shadow, Courtney, Jennifer, and Cheryl. I love you all and appreciate your ongoing support of Weird Distractions. If you're unable to support the show on a monthly basis, but still want to support it maybe as a one-time donation, check out the show's merch over on Redbubble or sign up for a one-time donation over on Buy Me A Coffee. Lastly, I want to hear from you. As some longtime listeners may recall, Christy and I released two listener story-based episodes called Listener Distractions. I'd love to keep doing this series and hear all of your weird tales of ghostly encounters, unexplainable events, and to 
too close to home true crime stories, you can email me your tales at weirddistractionspodcast@outlook.com. As well, send me feedback. If there are any corrections that need to be made after today's episode, let me know. And as always, if you need a distraction, I got you. Bye. Bye.